We arrive here today to debate at social distances from each other. There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RT News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me in studio today is Michal Lahan, RT's political correspondent. Michal, how are you? I'm good. Good. You don't look good. You look pensive. It's a lot to think about and it's getting better, isn't it? It is. That's what we're told. Yeah. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. We're also going to be joined by Sandra Hurley of our political staff and um, our political guest today is the Labour Party's Ivana Bacic. Ivana, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Paul. Looking forward to better things and brighter things. Indeed. We've got lots to talk about. Um, There is the question of COVID restrictions. There's also the issue of violence against women, which has been dominating the news agenda for the past few days. But if I can start off by taking you back to the heady days of the by-election, which saw you secure more than uh, 30% of the first preference vote and um, you romped home to Leinster House. What was that like? Well, um, thank you for taking me back to that very happy occasion. I was absolutely overwhelmed, Paul. Uh, you know, I certainly hadn't seen it coming. I mean, we'd certainly run an ama- you know, an amazingly positive campaign. We had huge numbers of people coming out to canvas with us. And indeed, our challenge was managing uh, it safely in, in times of COVID. But we found, you know, really people were so receptive around Dublin Bay South. It's my home constituency. And uh, just a hugely warm reception, and I suppose that culminated in that in that great result. But I was really honoured and just so, you know, overwhelmed at it. And yeah. uh, and uh, it's uh, I've really enjoyed what has been quite a different sort of uh, life and role since then. Because of course, being a TD is very different to being a senator. And I was, you know, very how so? Because you were a senator from two thousand and seven, so that was a good fourteen years you clocked up as a senator. What's it like over the past year being a deputy? Well, I was very grateful to the graduates of Trinity for re-electing me on four occasions to represent them in the Shannon, and certainly, um, you know, really enjoyed that and used that time as productively as, as I could, brought forward lots of private members' bills and was very uh, proud to see quite a number of those become law. So I think one could be very productive in the Shannon. I suppose what's different in the Dáil is, first of all, the Dáil itself is a very different setting. It's much more uh, shouty, as I've said. It's much more male. <laughs> is, that, we have, is that a scientific term? <laughs> shouty. I think it can be. Uh, it's more confident to perhaps use more formal yeah. language. Um, it's certainly um, an arena where the debate is more is more adversarial. Uh, you know, the Shannon tends to be more thoughtful, more reflective. There's a different, different procedures, of course. But also what's really striking, what was really striking to me was how much of a cultural difference there is between Dáil and Shannon in terms of numbers of women. Because in the Shannon, we're close to, we were close to 40% female in this, in this particular term, whereas in the Dáil, only 23%, less than a quarter of us are women and in the debates this week on the huge outpouring of grief and anger the awful killing of Ashling Murphy you know we've seen really you know so many women in the doll including myself just speaking about that feeling of being in such a minority in the doll and how that has really you know I suppose shapes our experiences in there it does also shape I think the culture in the house and it makes it just that very bit very different to the Shannon even apart from the procedural difference in the constitution roles of both houses. But I should say on a happier note, I mean, the doll is, it's wonderful to be a TD and to represent my own constituency in my own local area. And I'm really enjoying that. Well, just because you mentioned that issue, I mean, obviously, the, the, the tragic 
and horrendous case of Lasha Murphy is before the courts. So we will we, we push that to one side. But on, on the wider issue, within um, your Doyle speech, you address the fact that 244 women since 1996 have been murdered, 152 in their own home, 87% by a man known to them. What do those statistics tell us? The extent to which women are subjected to assault and abuse in their daily lives and in their homes is a real, real challenge for us all in society. It's, it's something you know, so-called domestic violence, violence by intimate partners. This is the sort of violence that is so persistent and pervasive and that we need to really focus all our energies on addressing. You know, I'm the incoming chair of the Gender Equality Committee that the Oireachtas established just in December. And among the measures we're looking at is a series of measures on gender-based violence. And I'm very heartened that the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, is taking this so seriously. You know, this week she spoke about taking on the lead role as the cabinet minister who will take forward policies on tackling uh, crimes against women, violence against women. I think that's what we need is that cabinet lead on it. Yeah, and we need to see, you know, I've called for a public awareness campaign, the sort of on on a level with the COVID information campaigns we've seen to make it clear that sexism and misogyny are unacceptable to address this powerlessness of women in society, which is really, which really compounds that sexism and which I think has has generated a culture where men, not all men, of course, uh, but some men feel it's acceptable to be abusive towards women. And I think what's been made clear in the speeches in the doll this week and elsewhere and the media and in women's own experiences that while not all men are perpetrators of violence, clearly only a minority, all women fear that violence and all women, all of us, modify our behaviours and perform mental checklists because of the fear of male violence. So it is pervasive. It is a really persistent issue that we need to tackle. And can, I'm just trying, before we get into the question of the solutions that are being proposed by government and whether you're supportive of them or feel more additional measures are required, just because one of your many hats is Reed Professor of Criminal Law, would you be able to frame where Ireland stands in the context of violence against women with its European um, partners? Just to, to know, I'm not quite sure of a league table, but just to try and get an understanding of where we, we are. I saw there was a letter in the Irish Times which suggested that when it came to homicide against women, if you were looking at the statistics that Ireland had one of the lowest if not the lowest and that's not taking away from anything you said but I'm just wondering um, where you see uh, Ireland in comparison to other countries. Well, I think it's a really good, a really important question is, you know, the extent to which this is an international phenomenon. And what we know from data from around the world is this is international. And I think that, you know, that's important to say. Ireland is not unique in having uh, issues with sexism, issues with domestic violence, issues with harassment of women. And indeed, as you've said, in terms of international league tables, we, in fact, have a relatively low crime rate generally. So it's not just about uh, data on attacks on women, but also uh, if you look at international comparisons, our crime rates are much lower, for example, than the US, crimes of violence and, and indeed all crime. So those league tables, perhaps, you know, you have to see the context of all crime figures where we do, where we do fall. So, so we're not doing so badly on that front. Where we're doing very poorly is on, for example, the provision of shelters where below, for victims of domestic abuse. We're below the, um, the levels required in the Istanbul Convention and that's yeah. been well documented. And where we're also performing performing poorly is on attrition rates. In other words, a failure to process attrition, a slippage between the reporting of violence and the following up or prosecution of violence. So crime data, of course, relies on official recorded crime figures 
where we know there is a huge, it's been referred to indeed as a dark figure, a huge dark figure of unreported crimes against women or indeed crimes that are reported but not actioned, not prosecuted by Gardaí or followed up by prosecuting authorities. Again, Ireland isn't unique. This phenomenon of a dark figure, the lack of reporting or under-reporting of domestic and sexual crime especially, this is an international phenomenon but we're doing poorly on this and we do need to take take up the slack and look at the measures and, you know, there are, yeah. there are when you talk about solutions, I mean, there have been a series of recommendations in a ve- some very important reports, the O'Malley, Tom O'Malley's report from 2020, which actually itself was commissioned in the wake of the Belfast rape trial. That recommends a number of different, a whole series of different measures to address failings in our prosecution system. What, where we also fall down, and I've done research on this actually, where we also fall down uh, by comparison with other European countries is that in our criminal justice system, victims have much less of a voice, much less in terms of rights of representation. That's due to our particular criminal justice system, but it's something that, again, the O'Malley report has recommended should be addressed to give victims, uh, particular victims of sexual offences, more of a voice in the courtroom and a stronger representation in the courtroom. If we change tack and just talk about um, the Labour Party, um, you are the sole female TD for Labour, and yet the party is been creatively using its um, senators um, quite differently from what has been done before. Um, Is this an attempt by the Labour Party to represent itself as a party which has got a gender balance when the actual case is it doesn't? Well, I'm very proud of being a Labour member and a Labour TD and Labour, of course, is is the party of the trade union movement. It's a party that has led on equality for women and equality more broadly in Irish society for 100 years. So I'm really proud of our history. Uh, and I'm also really proud of my women colleagues in the Shannad, Marie Sherlock, Anne, Annie Hoey and Rebecca Moynihan, who, as you say, really have been to the fore in pushing Labour policy just this week. They and Mark Wall, our other senator, have been, um, have been promoting and uh, pushing the a reproductive health leave bill that uh, would provide for uh, paid leave for women experiencing okay. early miscarriage. So that's that's the sort of work we're doing. So, you know, it's, I, I really am very regretful that there aren't more women TDs for Labour, um, but I'm hoping that and expecting that that will change and that we, I'll be joined in the doll with uh, by at least by Marie, Annie and Rebecca in the in the next term. But certainly we're working very hard to ensure that we will have a more than a, a, a more women candidates even than we had on the last occasion. We've got really strong women councillors across oh. the country. And our, our I'm going to stop Lord you before Mayor, you start to mention them all I'll, out. Well, I'll just to say Alison Gilliland, of course, our okay. Labour Lord Mayor here in Dublin, who's super Superb. So, you know, I, I think we'll we'll be back. You know, obviously we've we had a number of very poor elections in 2016 and 2020. Uh, I do hope that my by-election result may be the sign of better things to come. Um, is Labour divided? If we push the issue of gender to to one side, is Labour divided? Sometimes, well, some of the bags say Labour couldn't be divided because it didn't have enough TDs in, in in recent years. But there is this sense in 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 chattering political classes that there is the trade union wing of the Labour Party which is reasserting itself, and you could see it at the national conference with going back to the story plan and lots of red all over the place and then the liberal agenda which is you and some people feel um, the Labour needs to sort of you know dovetail more towards your direction if it wants to get more seats. 
Well, this is a perennial uh, question. That we've it's been really as good as the, are you going to join and merge with the Social Democrats? We'll come to that I, in a minute. I'm expecting that one next, Paul. Well, first of all, I would never leave gender to one side, of course. That that has to inform everything we do is the sense of gender, the need for gender equality in Irish society. But, um, but the old chestnut of bread and roses, can you have both? Yes, you can. You know, since my student days and I first joined the party in the dim and distant past in the late 80s, we've been asked that, is Labour more a party of roses or of bread? Is it more a party of the trade union movement, the working class, or is it more a party of the liberal uh, so-called Dublin 4 elite? And of course, Dublin 4 is within Dublin Bay South. And I hasten to say that there's very a very diverse uh, um, communities within Dublin 4 as across the constituency. So, you know, look, I represent all of my own constituents and within our party, we represent, uh, we look to represent people of all classes and, uh, uh, and uh, of all communities. And we don't see a distinction between the economic and the social policies. It's important for us to be pro-left-wing, pro-progressive policies on the economy as much as on society. So that's why we've led on divorce, for example, on women's rights, contraception, abortion rights, but also on workers' rights, on trade union representation and on equal pay, uh, equal pay for women and men, but also fair pay for all workers. And that's really important to us. Is Alan Kelly doing a good job? We haven't seen much of him. Um, well, we've seen a lot of him, I think. Uh, he's been very actively engaged in uh, going uh, as much as possible with public health restrictions in um, meeting around, um, Labour members around the country and trying to rebuild the party. And of course, that's the huge task for all of us is rebuilding. Um, we've got a really strong base in terms of membership around the country. But of course, there's lots of constituencies where we don't have a Rochdis representation. We need to change that. And we're building on our strong council representation. We did a good local election, actually, in 2019 and uh, other parties not so good uh, that year. So uh, so we're going to build on that. So really that's has been his focus. And what I do think, you think, Micheál Lohan? Um, you know, Alan Kelly, one of the things we did expect from him was that he was going to be organising and he had that um, energy to go and do it. And we certainly saw a feisty um, young leader coming out. And now as he moves into his middle age as leader, he's beginning to change a little bit. Would you go along with what Ivan is saying that he, he's there, you're just maybe not seeing it all the time? Yeah, well, there definitely seemed to be a tone and it did seem to coincide with Ivana's by-election campaign where Alan Kelly uh, became a softer figure uh, for, for whatever reason. Um, does that work? I think there there's a few things happening. One is the way the doll has been set up and the, the general mood around COVID restrictions and the like and the tone of debate uh, perhaps didn't allow the more stronger adversarial uh, attack-minded approach that would have typified him in the past. I think even in the last few hours walking around Leinster House though, there is a feeling and it's a widespread feeling here this evening that things could be returning to normal and normal in the sense of political debate uh, and back to those issues like housing, like cost of living in a really full-on way very soon if things go along expected lines tomorrow. So I think that will be a key test and of course the other test following on from the by-election when then will be the next scheduled elections which will be the local elections and it is at that point whether you'll see uh, Alan Kelly's uh, skills, renowned skills uh, by those who are close to him and those who who, who believe he is good at organising local uh, branches and the like, whether that yields fruit or not. If it doesn't, well, then there is difficulty because the national opinion polls would suggest uh, Labour are stagnating at that level. Yeah, um, and what do you think of that, Ivana? Because like Shane Ross says, you're the next leader of the Labour Party, you should be the one. 
I saw Shane's article. I've known Shane a long time. One could say with friends like that, but uh, I don't agree with his analysis. I mean, my focus is on holding uh, a seat, uh, my seat in Dublin Bay South in the next general election, which of course is going to be a major uh, uh, challenge because... uh, Sure, some are saying you can have it for 20 years. You have every, oh everything fits now. That's what your opponents are saying. It's well, sorted, Ivana. You can stay at home with your bike and no problems. <laughs> well, first of all, I'd never stay at home with my bike. I'll be out on it all the time. But of course, to resort to another cliche, they would say that, wouldn't they? I, I think it will be a major challenge. So that's my focus is on the constituency, but also, of course, on work within the doll and making progress on gender equality. Big challenge for me taking on this chairing role of the on the Committee of Gender Equality and I'm Can really proud to that. Can I ask you about that? that? Because yeah. one of the things that you were associated with and through and we'll probably leave it at this one is that you are very much associated with climate action even the bicycle is nearly a sort of a visual representation of the changes that people need to meet and yet Labour doesn't have a seat on the Climate Action Committee which seems strange given some of the prominent statements the party's made and yet where the nuts and bolts of legislation is reviewed and reports made Labour simply isn't there. It's a matter of enormous regret to me, Paul, that we don't have a seat on the Climate Committee. Uh, the fact is, the reality is, there's only seven of us TDs. There were, of course, when committee places were being doled out, there were only six TDs because it was before my election to the Dáil. We didn't get a place on that committee. We're also lacking place on quite a number of other critical committees simply because of the lack of numbers. Uh, you know, I do have a role as children's spokesperson um, on the Children Committee, and I'm glad to be a member of that and have been very actively engaged in our pre-ledge scrutiny on the, on the Adoption Information Bill, for example. And I'm also, of course, now chairing this Gender Equality Committee. So, you know, I, I, my role as climate spokesperson is also hugely important to me because climate is an issue on which I've been politically engaged and active for a long, long time. I brought forward the first climate protection bill, in fact, in 2007 in, in the Shannad. So, uh, so you it's, know... It is odd though, isn't it? Well, it, it's, you know, as I say, it's simply a matter of allocation yeah. and the, the lack of TDs means that smaller parties do not get representation on every committee. It's just the way democracy, I suppose, democracy democratic allocation works. But it is a matter of regret to me. And I've been engaging with Brian Ledden, the chair of the committee, and very kindly he's, you know, he's uh, um, he's enabling me to, to follow with the proceedings. But unfortunately, again, they okay. clash with the Children's Committee. So, you know, I can't be everywhere at once, much as I'd like to be, but I'm certainly going to keep a very, very vocal presence on climate matters. Well, thanks very much for being somewhere and um, joining us on the Your Politics <laughs> podcast today. Thanks very much, Amanda Belchick. Thank you. Um, Michal, um it's all in the ether. It's restrictions um, and they're going. Yeah, they are going. It seems uh, that's inevitable. It's just a matter of when. It doesn't seem like there's a question mark around it. I suppose the key sentence from the Taoiseach when he spoke on Morning Ireland uh, seems to centre on the fact that there has to be a rationale for restrictions. He says that is the public health view right now. So then the question is, is there a rationale for the current level of restrictions? Uh, and there doesn't seem to be. That seems to be the tone politically that's been emerging throughout the week. And I suppose that tone, while you can say it's speculation and the like, it's not formed in a vacuum. It is formed through interaction. Well, with, you would say that, wouldn't you? Well, it, it's formed through interaction between political people and public health people. And yeah. and that is where it emerged from. And I think when you do have the Taoiseach coming out before an effort meeting, uh, a cautious political figure that he is 
Michal Martin speaking with such a degree of confidence about what will happen and such a degree of optimism. Uh, it would seem that the die has been cast. I think it's just a question of how quickly those restrictions are unwound now. Uh, Sandra Hurley of our political staff, would you agree with that? I mean, it seems to me that um, they're definitely going to continue to stagger um, the easing, the restrictions being lifted. In other words, there will be a gap. Maybe what they're going to do is to sort of compress the amount of time um, that those hoops are going to be jumped through. Yeah, I think uh, to use one of Michal's favourite recent words, the the vibes are good. I mean, it's just all good news. Uh, it's been pushing towards this all week. And I think there has been um, a rash of ministers out trailing the good news this week, really getting ahead of the announcement uh, and trying to take ownership of it. Um, it is unusual to see the Taoiseach out doing an interview on the day that Neffet meets. There certainly is confidence that they know what is uh, going to come out. I think we're looking at a pretty rapid reopening, but it will be staggered. They have emphasise that. So first of all, we're likely to see the lifting of that early closing time. It looks like it's going to be pushed back to midnight at some stage next week, perhaps even early in the week. Then other moves would follow later, the uh, increase in the number of people at weddings and then nightclubs probably towards the end. We are going to still have mask wearing. Uh, the Taoiseach was very clear on that. But something the Thánaiste said today in the Dolly of Radker, he mentioned new guidelines for workplaces and schools. And I think we are going to get uh, a better indication tomorrow from the government about this return to the workplaces. It's been kind of halting. It was due to get going in around towards the end of September and then they had to push it back. Uh, they really want to get going on that again. Um, Michal, what should we read into the fact that, as Sandra mentioned, Michal Martin was on Morning Ireland. We had the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly. He was on The Tonight Show on Virgin Media. We had the Thornish, the Leo Varadkar on The 6-1 News, all happening before Neffet had even got in around the table. Well, I think they know what's going to happen. I mean, there are some interpreted that they are trying to influence Neffet uh, and put them in a box that they can't get out of. I, I don't think it is that. I think they have a clear read uh, as to how this is going and they have that based on the figures uh, that have been emerging throughout the week uh, and a level of interaction that clearly, I mean, like for all the, the, the Neffet and Neffet as a kind of a obscure, great independent force, which they are, but I mean, Tony Houlihan works in the Department of Health. His office is near Stephen Donnelly's office. They know what's going to happen. Yeah. And as a result, then it was the political battle and the political bit of intrigue to try and get out and sell the news as quick as possible. Uh, even last week, uh, in some ways, the Thornister was trying to get ahead of it. Uh, Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, has found that if you do want to uh, get your message out, you've got to get out before it. Uh, and he was, by his standards, out very early, uh, coming out on Tuesday, saying that things would lift before the end of the month. Can I ask you both, um, starting with you, Michal, just because you're, you're, you're wrapping up there, um, is this basically COVID as a pandemic is over? You're looking at the ICU numbers, they're just not there. For the level of restrictions that we have, that this is over. Even in, in political terms, it's time to move on. Yeah, for now, it seems in political terms, that is it. And there is, as I said, a real enthusiasm uh, around the place that you will see political debate returning to things like housing, cost of living and climate. There are three things that have been mentioned. At the same time, there are two things that, that kind of seem to put some slight worry in the air. One is Leo Varadkar addressing his parliamentary party, uh, talking about the need to prepare for a variant later on in the year. And of course, those structures around vaccination uh, will remain in place. And they're saying more investment in ICU beds. And as well as that, the health minister speaking earlier in the week spoke about having sobering conversations uh, with, with, with 
health experts around future variants. So you feel the clouds are going to lift and there's going to be quite a celebration in that weekend uh, around St. Patrick's Day, that four day weekend announced now. Uh, But perhaps the winter, uh, you could see a return to to this type of thing, perhaps not quite at the level uh, we've seen before, though. And what do you think, Sandra? Are we heading to COVID becoming like the flu, something we prepare for in October and it's all over by February? Well, certainly everybody hopes so. The hope is that uh, COVID becomes endemic, sort of like the flu, as you mentioned, still has the power perhaps to um, to cause deaths and therefore people will have to be careful, particularly those who are vulnerable. But it would not be as prevalent and it would not uh, reach into our daily lives in the way that it has over the last two years. But of course, nobody can be certain. And the issue, of course, is about variants, whether variants could develop somewhere in the world. We've seen this already, that variants can be thrown up uh, and it will be something that we're monitoring. So I think it's going to be bumpy, which is some of the which is what some of the experts in this area feel. It's not going to be a smooth trajectory over the 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 rest of the course of this year. But certainly it's looking very hopeful at the moment. One of the criticisms that the opposition parties have levelled at the government is this question of the state for preparedness, that they should have these scenarios ready to roll. How easy or difficult is it for the government to um, do that, to be able to anticipate what's going to come so that when, um, if the the black clouds do return, they're able to act and act quickly on it? Well, I think in the the past, what you did see during earlier waves was definitely a political desire and a political hope that it was over and a sense of walking away. What is striking this time is they're talking about keeping structures in place uh, around immunisation, around ICU beds, and of course the mask wearing continuing uh, for quite some time as well. So I think this is the first wave that the country seems to be emerging from where there's at least an admission, and you'd expect it, I suppose, at this stage, given the way things have gone, <laughs> that things could go a certain way again and that you'd also need the test and trace system in place. The opposition charge, though, does seem a little harsh at times in the sense that all those structures that are there, there seems to be this expectation that they should remain at full tilt operational wise uh, and to be ready uh, immediately. I suppose it will take some uh, time to get a system operating at the level it is now if, if a variant does come back. But at least this time, you're not going to see those standing down of, of, of groups and of bodies that I think that you saw in the past. And it's going to be the big question then, of course, given that you had that huge enthusiasm politically uh, in the latter part of the summer to say that Neffet's days were numbered. What happens on that front now? Yeah. What do you think, Sandra? Particularly, say, if you take, for example, the question of schools, one of the criticisms, again, from the opposition parties was there was test and trace, then it was dismantled and that was a disaster. But is it a legitimate um, thing to do to have something, you know, for schools standing by over a protracted period of time when it's not required necessarily? I think what what the government will try to do is have something that's latent, that has an ability to crank up if necessary, but they're not going to be able to keep the infrastructure and the resourcing in terms of the people in place. And, And that's not simple then to transfer people when it is needed. I think the government over the past two years has struggled when it's tried to put a structure on the trajectory of where the virus is going. If you, we've all covered some of the big announcements from governments. Remember that from the government, you might remember the roadmap in 2020. There were the the levels that were announced on another the stage. Remember the levels. We were all supposed to know exactly what happens on level two, what happens on level three. Different counties could be on different levels. 
Uh, and that was quietly abandoned and the roadmap was accelerated then because there was optimism at the time. So uh, perhaps the learning for government is that it's very difficult to predict the future and trying to put a sort of structure in place has been uh, really thorny at times and uh, just simply has not played out the way it has wanted it to. To use some awful cliches that you hear the Public Accounts Committee and other committees, they're going to have to take the learnings and close the circle, but they have an acute awareness going forward. Going forward. Anything else um, moving or shaking? Just on that, I would say, uh, just on that, um, I suppose the the Tisha confirming again today that uh, they are going to have this look back, this investigation on on the handling of the pandemic. He would prefer to call it an evaluation, but I think there are several things that would come to the fore there. One, of course, is what happened in nursing homes. Uh, were the hospitals prioritised over, over the nursing homes to the detriment of the residents in nursing homes? How was that handled? Uh, also, things like the private hospital contract. Remember that a lot of money spent and uh, it does not look like it was used wisely. The procurement of PPE, some of those other contracts, uh, things for ventilators that weren't used wisely. There'll be a lot of issues as well about the spend and how the system cranked up uh, and where it failed in parts. Behold, wouldn't they lean, the government lean to Mike Ryan to say it's better to move and make a mistake than not move? Yeah, and there was a hint of that in Michal Martin's comments this morning as well, saying that yes, he he's, he has always said that he would like an inquiry, but he wouldn't like people to be looking over their shoulders if there is a, another outbreak in the future uh, and questioning their decisions. So that's that's a particularly fine balance and a very tricky one indeed for, for any inquiry uh, looking into this. Yeah, um, just one last um, topic before we go um, is the question of the Department of Foreign Affairs, an event which happened a long time ago, and yet it's continuing to rumble today. It continues to rumble and I suppose it is a political difficulty and Simon Coveney is going to have to go before a committee and answer questions on it. And we know that Simon Coveney at committees isn't something uh, that necessarily quells a controversy. In fact, it can re-spark it and reignite it. So I think think he learned his lesson and last time was contrite and got through it. I wouldn't be sure. I wouldn't be sure because I think there is there is a lot of political danger wrapped up in this particular controversy still. And I think he is someone uh, who is still damaged from from the earlier botched appointment of Catherine Sapone. So I think this is still live uh, and I think it's one that, that, that could cause bother until it goes through all the processes. And again, having an internal inquiry, uh, a, a silent internal inquiry until it emerged days later that it was in train, uh, you know, opposition asking questions is just how comprehensive can that be and is there enough there uh, to satisfy the what they require. Would the defence not be um, Sandra Hurley for um, Simon Coveney if I happen to be the Minister for Foreign Affairs to say well I've got a Secretary General who took an action, another Secretary General who was independent of what happened has investigated it and it's not up to politicians to get in the way of the civil service here so I'm just going to um, move on. Well, that demarcation between the civil service and the politicians was something that the Thonish that Leo Vradker invoked when he said that, you know, the politicians can't essentially uh, control the civil servants. That was something he he said in an interview last weekend. I, I think the problem for Simon Coveney is it's around the handling of this. I think within the political system, system there is an appreciation that this, while this is was a clear breach, it's not the largest or most egregious breach of the rules we've seen uh, since uh, COVID began. But it it has been the handling of it and the failure to initiate an investigation at the time. Uh, Simon Coveney confirming uh, over the past week that he did know about this uh, on the night that it happened or certainly the next morning. 
so why didn't he just inquire further and perhaps uh, maybe there should have been sanctions for individuals? Uh, his political antennae, I think, should have been piqued uh, by knowing that this was going to cause a problem. Uh, he could have shot it down much sooner and that's the problem for Simon Coveney. Certainly it's got a little bit more time to play out and there's going to be that day at the committee. That is going to happen in a few weeks' time uh, and he is, I think, going to have to certainly uh, take a lot from the opposition on that day. I think on the wider question though for Simon Coveney and on balance it would look like he will emerge from from this but there is always the question of leadership surrounding Simon Coveney and the future potential on that front and I think in that regard this has been very damaging coming as it does off the back of another controversy and the sense within many in the Fine Gael party who are always thinking about the future and looking to future leaders is that it will have an impact there and it will have an impact when they're making those assessments. Okay, um, we're going to wrap up. I'm just going to try and put us in. We were talking at the beginning of this podcast that we're going to be in a sunnier place by next week. Um, it'll all the restrictions will be lifted. We'll know where we're going. So if all of that um, COVID cloud um, disappears from Leinster House, um, what's going to be happening next week, Michal? Where is the action going to be? I think it returns to housing. That That is the pressure point for the government and that is a, a crisis clearly uh, that remains and is getting more intense for many people Government backbenchers and opposition backbenchers talk about getting up to 50, 60 calls a week in relation to housing, a mixture of social housing and affordability and rental issues. For you, Sandra? I think the number one issue this year will be the cost of living. And of course, housing and rents does feed into that. Problem for the government is that they've been making interventions here, but they're not matching the rise in inflation. They're going to be really pushed for more targeted measures to get uh, to help out households who are worst affected by this rise in inflation. It's at the worst level for, for 20 years. And I think this is something we're going to be talking about constantly in the Dáil. And I think what could be pertinent in relation to that as well, if you do have the big push at, and people going back to the workplace and all that, there has been a pressure valve of sorts on the big issue there, the big cost driver that Thonish just spoke about today, where Ireland is an outlier, that is around childcare. Uh, people who may be not using childcare as much because as a result of working from home, when that goes... Uh, that particular cost uh, is going to be felt by thousands of, if uh, tens of thousands of households across the country, yeah, which will add a new pressure. He said childcare and healthcare. So, and he said he was going to be looking at them over the coming years, which was a, maybe a hint of something. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, political political longevity. <laughs> on that note, um, Michal Lahan, our political correspondent, Sandra Hurley of our political staff, and thanks very much to Ivana Bacic of the Labour Party. That's our lot. Thanks very much for listening to your politics podcast from RTE News. Please do subscribe. Please do leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, take care. <laughs>